There was a father and he had two sons. He highly favored his younger son because he was more trades-oriented and more manly. The older son had a consistent and disciplined life. He worked slow and steady. The younger, more favored son did good trades work, but he was dishonest about the time that he spent working on the job. He would leave throughout the day to drink and to sleep with some ladies. What the older son lacked for natural skill, he was teachable and was able to perform trade skills with much effort. And one day on a construction job, as a result of the drunkenness and lack of attention to details of the younger son, a part of the building collapsed and ended up killing several other workers that were underneath the structure. The older son had warned the younger son several times of the shoddy job he was doing and offered to help him remedy the problem. The younger son, however, was too arrogant to accept the responsibility or the help. The father heard about what happened on the job site and rushed there. He first put blame upon the older son because of his lack of natural talent. But upon further investigation, talking to the other workers on the job site, it was found that that younger son was drunk all the time. He was sleeping with ladies. He's walking off the job site and he had a terrible lack of attention to detail. It was clear that the younger son was the one at fault for all the troubles that had taken place there that day on the job site. The father decided that something needed to be done. He was so angry. He needed to take it out on someone because it couldn't just be ignored. He wanted to keep back the consequences of the destroyed building and the lost lives of workers from falling on the younger son because he was his favorite though he was the most irresponsible and ungrateful of the two. The younger son was so bad, there was no hope that he would actually reform his life. It was impossible for him ever to change. It was up to the father to do something for him. The father decided that it was best to punish the older son as if he had done all the wrongs the younger son had done. The older son took all of the charges that were laid on the younger son and was sentenced and ultimately received capital punishment for the lost lives of the workers because of the negligence to the building. The father's wrath was then absorbed in the death of his older son. Because of the death of his older son, the younger son, he went on uh, around without a reformed life like nothing had ever happened. In fact, the court made an arrangement that all future wrongs the younger son would ever do were paid in full by the capital punishment of the older son. The problem was that the employees of the father started to question the father's integrity and were concerned that he might not do justly in the future if something similar was to happen. They wondered if they may be punished unjustly, just like the older brother. They wondered if the younger brother might get more bold and vile yet. They lost their trust in the father and quit their employment with him and went and worked for someone else. This story may sound a bit crazy to you, and it is a bit crazy. If we were to take these, these things as something that actually happened, I think a lot of us would throw our hands up in the air and be like, what kind of a person is it? What kind of a father is this? What kind of a, of a court and jury and judge are these that dealt with this case? Whoever gets punished for somebody else's wrongdoing when everybody knows about it, how is that even possible? And really, for what? benefit really takes place out of all that. Didn't seem to reform the son's life. It made the trust of the workers be uh, lessened as far as their trust towards the uh, father who is their employer was going on. This is very much the same case 
as a theory of the atonement, as we're now going to be going through the doctrine of limited atonement as taught by Calvinists, it is important for us to first deal with their view of the atonement and what it does. And that is dubbed the penal satisfaction theory of the atonement. Ultimately, it goes something like this. Because no one can fulfill the demands of the law, and that's because of total depravity, depravity, or as they call it, total inability, Jesus must satisfy justice on our behalf, and then he must obey on our behalf. In other words, we're so bad, there's literally nothing we can do, not even repentance and faith, that can recommend us to the grace of God. Therefore, God has to elect some for whom he will satisfy justice and satisfy their lack of obedience. You might say, that sounds nuts. Who's going to do that? Is that the kind of God we serve? Does anyone really even believe that? Yes, there are people in this day that do believe that. One um, man is John Piper, whom I'm going to read some quotes there. Now, I don't mean to say these things uh, simply to just attack the character of a person. I'm simply just bringing to light the doctrines and teachings of these people and where they logically land. So here's what John Piper says. The atonement is the work of God in Christ on the cross in which he completed the work of his perfectly righteous life canceled the debt of our sin, appeased his holy wrath against us, and won for us all the benefits of salvation. If Jesus did not do everything, then you would believe that the death of Christ did not decisively secure the salvation of anyone. It only made all men savable so that something else would be decisive in saving them, namely their choice. This is John Piper's criticism. If, if there's no such thing as limited atonement, then this is what you're left with. But now he says, the new birth is blood-bought. The effectual call is blood-bought. The gift of repentance is blood-bought. None of these acts of irresistible grace is deserved. They came to us because Christ secured them by his blood and righteousness, but that means he did not secure them for all in the same way. Otherwise, all would be born again, and all would be effectually called, and all would receive the gift of repentance. This is only because of the logical conclusion, listeners, of the penal theory of the atonement. John Piper realizes that it would be universalism then, if we believe this penal theory and there's no limited atonement, then that means that everybody by default is saved because Jesus already paid the price. So let's go back to what he says. If Christ died for all people in the same way, John Piper says, then his death did not infallibly obtain regenerating grace or faith or repentance for those who are saved. Regenerating, saving grace, meaning being born again, uh, grace comes from the spirit. We cannot regenerate ourselves. However, faith and repentance and I'm saying this, faith, so regenerating or born-again grace, it comes directly from the Spirit of God. We can't regenerate ourselves. However, the Bible teaches that faith and repentance are not blood-bought gifts, but commands and conditions for us to meet to receive God's regenerating grace. So here we have John Piper trying to hold to this penal satisfaction theory, and he realizes that the logical ends of this is either universalism or there has to be a limited atonement universalism and the limited atonement are constructs that are made by the minds of people that we don't find inside of the scriptures. So let's define what this penal satisfaction means literally then. This is a full satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. <clears throat> Past, present, and future sins are forgiven at the moment of faith. These sins cannot be paid for again, neither can they be forgiven again. The limited atonement is then a constructed safeguard against universalism. The theory uh, is also known as the judicial theory. So what does this all boil down to? Well, let's ask Dr. A.A. A. Hodge. He was a huge proponent for Calvinism, and he's written theology books, which many would refer to in Calvinist circles. Uh, and he would be more of the federal uh, five-point Calvinist. 
This four points it boils down to. Number one, sin for its own sake deserves the wrath and curse of God. Number two, God is disposed from the very excellence of his nature to treat his creatures as they deserve. Number three, to satisfy the righteous judgment of God, his son assumed our nature, was made under the law, fulfilled all righteousness and for the punishment of our sins. Number four, by his righteousness, those who believe are constituted righteous, his merit being so imputed to them that they are regarded as righteous in the sight of God. So sin is so bad, it's gotta be punished. God is obligated to treat his creatures as they deserve, so he will punish sin. And then he needs to satisfy the righteous judgment of God. So then Jesus stepped in, is basically going to take the brunt of the punishment. He's going to be punished on our behalf for our sins, though he did nothing himself. And then because we're so awful, we can't even obey correctly. Jesus is also going to obey for us. That's what it all boils down to, according to Dr. A.A. Hodge, as he sums it up. So there's an essential part of God's nature, we're told through the system, that he is obligated to punish sin. Their theory is, that divine justice must have absolute penal satisfaction. That means just punishment. It is a necessity of judicial rectitude in God. Is there a problem with that though? If Jesus, as they say, is our substitute, then our sins must have been transferred to him in some way for this to even be effective. A Methodist theologian, Miley, said, nothing could be punished in Christ, which was not transferred to him and in some real sense made his. If that is said to be the case, the, then Jesus did not merit or deserve the punishment, which flies in the face of God being obligated to punish sin. Remember, they said he's obligated to punish sin, but Jesus didn't sin. So what is he punishing? The problem is under this theory that Jesus, the substitute, is now liable to punishment when he committed no sin to be punished for. He's had no sin or guilt and therefore could not be punished as a substitute. Absolute justice would demand the punishment of the criminal himself and not the punishment of some holy innocent person as they would maintain is what Jesus did. Uh, through this theory, we're told that God's wrath is in the way of the sinner's salvation. God's so angry, that's why sinners can't get saved. God was furiously angry at sin. He let fly a thunderbolt of wrath at it. The bolt hit his son, but God felt better for it. Now that sounds like a stab and it is because that's ultimately what it boils down to. God is so angry. He's got to take his wrath out. Like if you were going to be so angry at somebody, you didn't want to punch him in the face. So you go in the other room, scream and start pounding a pillow. That's the character of God that's being presented here. The Bible though, doesn't teach that God's wrath is in our way of salvation. God's wrath is upon our sin, no doubt. But the Bible teaches that our sin and rebellion is in the way of our salvation. So how, let me ask you this, how can punishing the sinless Christ satisfy the obligation for God to punish sin? Because he still hasn't punished sin at this point. But the, but the Calvinists, many of them would say his, he, he didn't take the sins onto ourselves. They weren't transferred to him in that sense. So they try and make up other constructs to alleviate some of the problems that they make with this theory. And you may be saying at this point, why is this theory um, a, a problem? Why is this even linked to limited atonement? And we're going to get to that as we go through. This theory is not completely off in that it contains the scriptural truth of a substitutionary atonement. Jesus is a substitute on our behalf. Unfortunately, people that do not adhere to this theory are accused of not believing in substitutionary atonement. There is another understanding of the atonement that is not 
just filled with all these errors errors of this penal theory. And we're going to get to that in the next episode. Uh, But let me ask you this question. Did Jesus die instead of or in behalf of people? That's something we need to answer. The penal part of this satisfaction theory that the Calvinists hold only deals with the removal of the penalty to the sinner. So the problem is, what merit does a sinner have to be worthy of heaven? Okay, well, if if Jesus, if all my sins were punished in Christ, and so that penalty can't be had against me, what makes me worthy to even enter the gates of heaven? So this penal substitutionary atonement theory says, Christ also has imputed his obedience to us, and therefore we are worthy because of Christ's obedience to enter into heaven. This is called a double imputation. If you remember from the first one that we did on total depravity, we dealt with the imputation of guilt and sin from Adam onto us. Basically, because we're Adam's offspring, we're guilty of Adam's sin, and therefore we're liable to punishment and all things because of what Adam did, which is completely flies in the face of moral um, obligation, responsibility, all that kind of stuff. And we prove in that episode that that is not the case. And you can go back and listen to that about total depravity on your favorite podcast platform or look on YouTube, you'll find it there. Now the error is made worse because if if in Adam we all sinned, then they now make it and say that because we're so awful and we can't do anything about it, now Christ is going to obey for us. So all of Christ's obedience is then counted as our obedience, though we live a wicked and sinful life. This is a terrible problem. This takes the scriptural idea of substitutionary atonement and brings substitution into areas that the Bible does not speak about imputed obedience or imputed righteousness uh, is not the way that the Calvinists express it. We're told this that imputed righteousness in the scripture is referring to justification by faith. Past sins are wiped clean off of our slate as a direct result of our faith in the promises of God. There's nothing in this section of scripture, however, that says that Christ's obedience is ours. We have laid hold on the merits of Christ's death to justify us and make atonement for our sins toward God. That is what is imputed to us because there's no amount of sins we could do that would wipe the record clean. But if we repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ, then just like he said to Abraham, it's accounted to us for righteousness because we couldn't make those acts righteous. But this way, this can be taken care of. But his obedience is not reckoned to us according to what the Bible says. In case you've just tuned in, you are listening to God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. You can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. Visit and like our social media accounts with Facebook, Twitter, Gab, Gab TV, and YouTube. Visit our website at www.godsresistance.com and contact us by email at gods.resistance at gmail.com or call us at 570-362-7782. So the logical necessity as a result of the penal substitution uh, theory of the atonement is two things. Either universalism in that because Jesus paid the debt of sin, everyone will be saved. That is the idea behind this penal satisfaction theory that he purchased everything. There's nothing that a human being can do. He's purchased all. So there's that. But because we see that the scriptures say that not everyone is going to be saved, the only other option is 
unconditional election or limited atonement. And that, that unconditional election implies limited atonement. Dr. A.A. A. Hodge, as we spoke of before, he says, we hold that Christ died first for his elect, second to make their salvation certain. So he says universalism is not scripturally true, so we're going to talk about limited atonement. A Dr. Symington, he says the death of Christ being a legal satisfaction for sin all for whom he died must enjoy the remission of their offenses. So they enjoy this even without repentance and because they are the unconditionally elect. But why do you even need the sacrifice of Christ if these people are already unconditionally elect from the foundation of all existence according to God's decree? You see, when we get into this penal satisfaction theory, how it is connected to unconditional election and limited atonement you cannot pull any one of these parts out and have this whole doctrinal framework still intact. This idea and uh, view of the atonement and penal satisfaction theory and limited atonement takes away personal responsibility, and also it makes zero sense. Why did Jesus even need to come here and die if I'm already elected from the foundation of the world? What, what purpose did he come forth? And I'm sure that there's some uh, answer that they would give, some theological you know, twisting around trying to take care of this other problem, but it really doesn't fly in the face of all of the other scriptures that teach us about moral responsibility and judgment and what Jesus did on the cross for us. That doesn't work together. So you cannot hold to the penal satisfaction theory without being a universalist or someone who holds to limited atonement and unconditional election. A Nazarene, and I, when I say Nazarene, the Church of the Nazarene now is not what they used to be. It used to be a uh, much more orthodox um, church, and in its inception, a very much um, spirit-filled church, not uh, a wacky charismatic situation, but a, a church that believed in the inerrancy of the Word of God, had spirit-filled men, uh, was an evangelistic presence in the world, was not caving to all of this liberal uh, stuff that we now see the um, Church of the Nazarene. But um, so when the Nazarene was in a better state, uh, their, their theologian H. Orton Wiley, uh, he wrote this. It is evident then that the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement involves the question of its extent also. If Christ died for all men, then all are unconditionally saved as universalism maintains. If all are not saved, as the scriptures clearly teach, then the only, excuse me, alternative is a belief in the atonement as limited to the elect. Thus, there is developed as a natural consequence of the theory an unscriptural and false notion of its application, which is limited atonement. So logical Calvinists hold that Christ was only punished for the elect because they realize universalism is not in the scriptures. Because of God's quote-unquote sovereign grace, he has chosen some people for whom he will bear their punishment and there can never be the penalty of the law against them as a result of it. So this is where we run into a lot of other problems, and we're going to get into that uh, as we move along here in this segment uh, on the penal satisfaction theory. I do want to say something that is unfortunate in our present day is that the penal satisfaction theory is held to be the only orthodox view of the atonement. Um, it has been... Well, historically, the penal theory is associated with the Calvinistic ideas 
of predestination and limited atonement. And the problem is, is that there's so many different groups and denominations now that do not hold to the five points of Calvinism, and rightfully so, and yet they have been so influenced by this theory uh, because a lot of intellectual writers and such things seem to have gravitated towards Calvinism in some respect because it kind of tickles their intellectual fancy as if they they ha- you have to be so smart in order to get this whole Calvinistic system. You've got to really, uh, you know, pour yourself in and study this over and go to seminary and, you know, all those kind of things. And I'm not saying anything against study and all that, but it, it's like people have this itch to want to seem like they have, um, you know, a special understanding of scripture. And in so doing, they have destroyed the simplicity that's in Christ, the simplicity of the scripture. And I understand that there are complex things in the scripture that are hard to understand. Even Peter mentioned that concerning the writings of Paul. However, it is unfortunate that people that used to have Arminian backgrounds um, or more of a free will kind of a background or some kind of mixture in between that did not buy into this Calvinism at large, most people seem to hold to this kind of a theory. I say at large in the orthodox circles because there's others that label themselves as evangelical um, that couldn't, that, that their theory of the atonement, who even knows what it is. Um, but I'm talking about people that are serious about God's word. So I said a second ago, though, um, that historically, the penal theory of the atonement is associated with the Calvinistic ideas of predestination and limited atonement. Predestination meaning that God has determined who will go to heaven and who will go to hell from the foundations of the earth. The number cannot be added to or taken away, and that's unconditional election, all these things tied together. And naturally, the outflow is a limited atonement. And this is historically linked to Calvinism. Uh, Another, um, well, this Nazarene theologian I told you about a moment ago, H. Orton Wiley, he said this, and he was quoting a teaching of a man, Boyce, who was a Calvinist theologian. He had um, written a systematic theology. He said, Christ died in the place of some who must therefore be saved since it would be wrong to punish both the sinner and his substitute. Christ died for the elect who are not only foreknown, but foreordained to the state of salvation by the decree of God. Those who are so predestined are unconditionally saved by the bestowal of regenerating grace, out of which arise repentance, faith, justification, adoption, and sanctification. So here he realizes that this historically, this penal theory, this is all wrapped up in this uh, limited atonement feature. We can find that from his, I don't even say it's a confession, it's, it's certainly his belief written on paper. The penal satisfaction theory rose up in its current form uh, during the time of the Reformation, and people that believe it um, have tried to make it seem like it's the only orthodox view, as I had mentioned before. Now, some might say that the penal satisfaction theory of the atonement was a reviving of the position that Anselm held uh, in the early thousands. The problem is Anselm believed that the merits of the sinless sacrifice of Christ overshadowed the punishment due to the sinner and not that Jesus bore our penalty. He didn't believe that that penal aspect of it, like uh, the penal satisfaction theory um, brings out. The merit of the sinless sacrifice of Christ can then be reckoned to our account if we believe. This is what Anselm held. He held to a conditional reception of the benefits of the atonement. Anselm stressed that Jesus freely offered himself to the Father. This is why there was so much merit in his death. In the penal part, the Father pours out his judgment and wrath on the Son, totally different from what Anselm thought and believed. 
Anselm taught that judgment was averted in the death of Jesus, but the penal theory teaches that judgment was absorbed. Those are two entirely different things, and they reflect on the character of God differently. So we do have some problems with this penal theory, and I want to bring these forth. A man, Gammertsfelder, he said, justice is deeper in God's nature than love and mercy, in spite of the scripture telling us that love and not justice was the moving cause of redemption. He said also, guilt and penalty are not transferable if morality is to be upheld and moral responsibility, which makes sense. We dealt with that in the uh, total depravity section uh, of why you should not be a Calvinist. No place then is left for forgiveness, according to Gammertsfelder. All sins were removed by the penal substitution, which was already done from the foundation of the world. So why, why do we need forgiveness if we're elect and there's nothing we can do about it? Also, another problem is, this goes against the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the human heart. A.M. Hills, uh, another th- great theologian said, see if God has no controversy with his own people when they sin. See if his justice is satisfied when individual believers backslide and fall away from God. See if his justice in their case is so satisfied by the atonement that it announces no threats, no punishment, no displeasure, and no warning. The Spirit of God convinces men of sin and righteousness and judgment. If the Holy Spirit were to act in accordance with the supposed truth of Calvinism, he would have comforted the elect, helping them to know that he paid the full penalty for their sins and they could never be held against them as well as he fully obeyed for them so none of their future sins could be held against them at all. Why would they be convicted whatsoever if they're unconditionally elected and that atonement is limited to them? But did the Holy Spirit deceive all the people whose testimony was that they were under terrible conviction before they became saved? Even some huge proponents of Calvinism like Jonathan Edwards? What function does this conviction of the Holy Spirit have if they were unconditionally elected and therefore penalty was already paid for from the beginning? Um, also, we've got the problem of antinomianism, which means against law. Most Calvinists would deny that this is an outcome of this, but historically, antinomianism went hand in hand with this type of belief in the atonement, the finished work doctrine, the finished salvation. Now, Jesus did finish his work, but it's not finished in the sense that they would bring out. Uh, And the person said this, um, his name was Dr. Crisp, Christ belongs to sinners as sinners. And if there be no worse than sinfulness, rebellion, and enmity in thee, he belongs to thee as well as to the world. Christ does justify a person before he believes. We do not believe that we may be justified, but because we are justified. The elect are justified from eternity at Christ's death, and the latest is uh, is before they were born. Every elect vessel from the first instant of his being is as pure in the eyes of God from the charge of sin as he shall be in glory. Though such persons do act rebellion, yet the loathsomeness and hatefulness of this rebellion is laid on the back of Christ. He bears the sin as well as the blame and shame. And God can dwell with persons that act the thing because all the filthiness of it is translated from them upon the back of Christ. A believer may be assured of pardon as soon as he commits any sin, even adultery and murder. God does no longer stand displeased though a believer does sin often. There is no sin that believers ever commit that can possibly do them any hurt. Therefore, as their sins cannot hurt them, so there is no cause of fear in their sins committed. Why then? Why this antinomianism against law? Well, the debt has been fully paid in the sense of a completed work. If the satisfaction theory is true, then the elect for whom the atonement was made uh, in their whole life and however wicked they may have been are entirely free from liability to punishment. Uh, Backslide as they may and sin as they please, God can only smile for all his wrath has been appeased. His justice has been satisfied and all his claims 
have been met. The elect are and always were as immune from the wrath and judicial condemnation of God as vaccinated people are immune from smallpox, says A.M. Hills. So Christ's active obedience is imputed to believers. That's part of their doctrine. Christ has obeyed for me as if I've done the same obedience Christ did. And Hodge admitted that if the claims of justice were satisfied in Christ and the claims of justice can never be again enforced for the elect, that is, we are not truly righteous, but Christ was righteous for us. Why do we even then need the atonement? If Christ obeyed for us and it's counted as our personal obedience, why do I need my sins atoned for? In fact, I can just live however I want because he already paid the price. So then there's no need of personal obedience to the law of God. Christ obeyed for me. My personal responsibilities under God's moral government have been transferred to Christ. This is where the teaching has come that states we're always going to sin in thought, word, and deed, uh, but we're not saved by works. And this leads to people just living carelessly and against law as if, as if now they have a license to sin because Christ died for them and paid the penalty. How is this a satisfaction then, dear listener, to God's strict justice? God is, is okay with us taking the name of Christ and living sinfully? Is that, is that what we're to deduce? Christ, is he substituted his obedience for mine so I don't have to obey? And I'm unconditionally elect, really. That's what's going on. That's what people would say. If this happened in any sphere of society, though, we would call this out. I hope you realize then that this penal satisfaction theory is a dangerous theory that flies in the face of scriptural testimony. And your next step is to call 570-362-7782. I would love to talk with you. And if you're a local around here, I'd love to get a, a coffee with you. Uh, I'd love to meet with you. Visit godsresistance.com for more information. Subscribe on all your favorite podcast platforms and YouTube. Just look up God's Resistance. And I, I just want to say to you, do not be deceived by fancy words and teachers, but join the resistance, God's Resistance. <laughs> Special thank you to Spectacular Sound Productions for giving permission to the use of the song Heroes and Monsters, which was edited and used in part on this production. The permission was granted under Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International Creative Commons License. That license may be found at https colon forward slash forward slash creativecommons.org forward slash licenses forward slash by hyphen essay forward slash 4.0 forward slash legal.